This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Most people recognize the name Dior as one of the world's premier fashion houses. People interested in fashion and French history know Christian Dior was its founder and one of the most important figures in modern fashion. But far fewer people know the story of Christian's sister, Catherine. While not as famous as her brother, she lived a remarkable life. She endured terrible tragedy as a child, joined the French resistance, was tortured and deported to Ravensbrück, survived a death march, returned to France where she was awarded the Croix de Guerre, and inspired one of the most popular perfumes ever. Today's episode is an interview with author Justine Picardy on her new book, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, which explores the life and world of Catherine Dior. Justine Picardy is the former features director of British Vogue, editor of The Observer magazine, and has worked as a fashion columnist for Harper's Bazaar and The Times of London. She is also an award-winning author of books such as If the Spirit Moves You, My Mother's Wedding Dress, The Life and Afterlife of Clothes, and Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life, among others. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Before we get to your most recent book, I noticed that in 2010, you published the book uh, Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life. Studying Coco, then later researching uh, Catherine Dior must have been quite a shock since the two women couldn't be more different. Coco was a very public figure who was even a singer in a cabaret, whereas Catherine was reserved to the point of being hidden. When writing Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, did you reflect on the differences between these two large figures in 20th century French fashion? Yes, I mean, in- inevitably I did. I think that what I reflected on was was in in terms of the differences i mean miss dior is as much about christian dior as as it is about catherine dior it is a relationship it's about a relationship between a brother and a sister but it's also about miss dior this sort of imaginary um romanticized version of french femininity which is represented by the Miss Dior perfume and the Miss Dior couture dress in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. But what struck me, having written my Chanel biography, uh, was that with Chanel, you see her becoming really famous after the end of the First World War and the end of that first global flu pandemic of 1918-1920. And she launches Chanel Number no. 5 in 1921, so a, a century ago, exactly. And also the little black dress, which makes her famous. And what I found interesting, if you know, through looking at history through the prism of of fashion through or couture and perfume that you see Christian Dior becoming globally famous in the same way that Chanel did but in the immediate aftermath of the second world war so it's rather a long answer to your very good question but my answer is what I was struck is how fashion becomes a way of reflecting a, a mood after a period of great trauma and disruption and in its aftermath, you see these two great visionary appearances on the one, first of all, Coco Chanel, then Christian Dior. 
it's perfectly fine to give long answers to questions, especially because as I read this book, I couldn't help but think that here you have to interpret the silence, which of course we are going to get more into because Katerine was a very reserved figure. So on that note, what made you want to write about Katerine? Well, I wanted to write about her and Christian, her brother. So when I first started the research for the book, after my Chanel biography was was published, Dior, the house of Dior, asked me if I would like to look in their archives with a view perhaps to doing a biography of Christian Dior. And when I looked at those archives, I was struck by the beauty of the artifacts there, the, the couture gowns that have been carefully preserved, the, the designs, the drawings, the illustrations. And I thought that it would make a really interesting exhibition. And indeed, it that did lead to the Dior Designer of Dreams exhibition at the V&A. That idea, original idea actually came from, from me and I introduced... Um, Dior and the archives to the V&A and there is now the big exhibition at, at Brooklyn the Dior designer of dreams exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum um, but the figure of Catherine I really nobody really knew anything about her so I knew I wanted to write about Christian but I hadn't found my way into how to tell the story until I heard about Catherine and I just thought it was so fascinating that his sister, who was the woman he was closest to in the world, she was his best friend as well as a beloved younger sister, and who Misty Orr is named for, he, he called his first perfume Misty Orr in tribute to Catherine, had been so forgotten by history. So what was it about her story that meant that she was apparently written out of his story and that's the book explores that so Catherine joined the French resistance at the end of 1941 at a time when very few people were active members of the French resistance in France there was probably no more than a hundred thousand active members of the resistance at that point out of a population of 40 million and I was interested in exploring, if, if you look at the, you know, the mythic figure of Miss Dior, so this, this vision of, of beauty and luxury and, and romance and femininity after the Second World War, how is it and why is it that the woman who is the inspiration for this perfume is forgotten? And that's what the book's about. That's what the book explores. What is it about the history of, of the occupation in France and the resistance, and in particular, the women in the French resistance and those who survived deportation to Ravensbrück? What was it about their return to France that was literally unbearable for France to talk about? So we've talked a bit about how Katerine was such a private figure. Was it difficult for you to research her and how did you approach the gaps in the record on her life? I never saw this as a biography of Katerine Dior. That, that's not what this book is. This book is about Christian, his sister Catherine, and the story of of many women um, who had similar experiences to Catherine, either in the French resistance and also in the concentration camps. So I saw it as a piecing together of, of threads, really. Catherine, nobody knew anything at all about Catherine. So there's a little bit about her in the Dior archives visually. So there's there's pictures um, of her both as a child and then um, when she was living with 
Christian in Paris in the 1930s when he was beginning his career as a freelance fashion illustrator and designer and she was working in a Maison de Mode in Paris. So there's some very atmospheric images um, which tell you something about how she, you know, was his first model in, in a certain way. Then she appears in the archives of F2, which is this this resistance network that um, was originally set up by some a couple of Polish intelligence officers who found themselves behind enemy lines in France after the fall of France, and had not the, the Polish some of the Polish army made their way to um, London and and others well you know many were killed or put in prisoner of war camps but one of the f- earliest french resistance networks was in fact set up by some polish officers and then they started recruiting french people and that was the network that she was part of so those archives were very interesting but they were also reporting into and supported by british intelligence so i also spent a long time looking in the archives, um, the National Archives at Kew in the United Kingdom, uh, which contains some British intelligence, Second World War archives. Um, And then I needed to go to Germany, to Ravensbrück, to find out what happened to Catherine and, and, and other women with her. But I also needed to find out what had happened to her in Paris when she was arrested in July 1944 by a Gestapo unit known as the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, which um, had a a German sort of sociopath or psychopath, really, who was in charge and who they liaised with the Gestapo in Paris. But they also recruited French collaborators who worked for the Gestapo um, and who were involved in, in... these arrests and torture. And there was an investigation into the activities of the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo after the war. Um, and there were about 15,000 handwritten statements, which were in about 14 cardboard boxes um, in a remote archive in France. And I just went through all of these until I could find Catherine Dior's handwritten statements. So many things to talk about that you mentioned, and we are definitely going to get to all of those. But first, let's talk about uh, Christian Dior, which is you describe the relationship with her brother as being the most important of her life. Can you tell us about their lifelong partnership? I'm not sure it was the most important of her life. Um, It was certainly an extraordinarily long-standing relationship in that they were very, very close until, you know, his death in 1957. So he died in 1957, very unexpectedly, of a heart attack. And and then she had a long life after his death. Um, she She lived until the age of 90 and she didn't die until 2008. So I think it would be wrong to say it was the most important. It was certainly a profoundly important relationship. I think that what they shared was they were born into this prosperous Belle Epoque family um, in in Granville on the Normandy coast. Their father had inherited a family business of fertilizer factories that had been established in the 19th century. So they were born into a very prosperous family. And their mother, Madeleine Dior, was a rather remote maternal figure, I suppose, which was quite normal in that kind of upper class backgrounds. And in those days, they would be, have been brought up by nannies and governesses and nursery maids. But where they were able to find a way, I suppose, to their mother's heart was through her love of the garden that she had created at their home in Normandy. And the, it was on top of a cliff top 
overlooking the English Channel. And she'd really created a garden there against all the odds. And of the five children, it was Christian and Catherine who inherited this love of gardening, which they shared with their mother, but also with each other. And then they they went endured together a series of catastrophes that afflicted the Dior family. Um, Their older brother, Raymond, who joined um, the French army during the First World War, soon after Catherine's birth, he was the only soldier in his division to, to survive the, you know, appalling death toll of of the First World War in the trenches. And he suffered from shell shock and also the after effects of of mustard gas poisoning. And then their other brother, Bernard, developed schizophrenia and was institutionalized and they never saw him again. And their mother, Madeleine, died of septicemia. And then their father lost all his money in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. So this family that had gone from a very secure and prosperous way of life was left with nothing. So the house in Granville ended up in the hands of the town council. All its contents were sold. Their father, Maurice Dior, um, ended up with a tiny little farmhouse in rural Provence, in the hills of Provence. And I think Christian really felt that it was his responsibility to help look after Catherine. She'd lost her mother when she was just 13 years old. And he, at the time of his mother's death and when his father lost all his money in the Wall Street crash, had an art gallery in Paris which was showing um, modernist art, everybody from Dali to, to Max Jacob and Picasso, Christian Berard. But in in the early years of the Great Depression, you know, nobody wanted to buy those modernist and surrealist artists. So his gallery went bankrupt and he had to learn how to make a living, which he did by teaching himself to draw. And then as soon as he was able, um, he gets Catherine a job in a Maison de Mode and they live together in Paris. So they they discover independence together, both economic independence by both having to earn a living but also I suppose the independence of living in Paris in the late 1930s at a time when you know it was a center of modernism of bohemianism it was a very exciting city for 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 the brother and sister you know to live in together so they shared that experience and then they shared the catastrophic experience of the invasion of France in 1940 and the fall of France and the occupation. And together, first of all, they were living in their father's farmhouse in Provence, growing vegetables because, like so many other people, they were close to starvation because of of rationing so much food and fuel and you know, so much was being siphoned out of France and into Germany. And so so they shared this series of, of catastrophic events in their life. That's what made them very close. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off. That again is French History 
at factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50. Sign up now. Your stomach will thank you later. So the next segment of the book is one of the most harrowing yet fascinating parts. Uh, Katerine falls in love with a member of the resistance and joins an organization to liberate France. What did she do to fight the occupation? So she she joins, as you say, she fell in love with a man called Hervé de Chabonnerie, who was one of the earliest members of, of the French resistance, and he was part of F2, this Franco-Polish network that were reporting into British intelligence. It's very interesting. Catherine met him um, really during her first act of resistance, which was to go and try and find a radio. So she went to, to Cannes from their little farmhouse in Provence to, to go in search of a radio and to get a radio. She wanted a radio to listen to General de, de Gaulle's banned broadcasts on the BBC um, on behalf of the Free French. And de Gaulle, you know, from the very beginning of, of the fall of France and Vichy France was calling on the French to resist, to not collaborate. So the mere fact that she wanted a radio to listen to these band broadcasts was a sign that she was prepared to resist and indeed to risk her freedom in that cause because simply to have a radio and to listen to those BBC broadcasts of the Free French was to risk imprisonment. So when she's getting the radio, she meets Hervé, he recruits her, they fall in love, and her role was to gather intelligence on on the, the German troop movements. And first of all, she did that all the way along the Mediterranean coast um, and in southern France, so Cannes, Nice, Marseille. She was part of a very, very active resistance network, but their role was not to... Um, you know, like the unlike the Maquis, who were would would, you know, sometimes try and take on the Germans in, um, you, you know, by by attacking them or blowing up, um, you know, perhaps a, a railway line. Catherine's role in F two and F 2s role was intelligence gathering, and as the Allies made their plans, well, first of all, for the United Kingdom, when it was totally isolated and was the last part of Europe to be un- not to be occupied, they needed information from F2 on where the, the Germans were moving troops to because at that point it looked very likely that, that the United Kingdom would be invaded. And then... Um, after America joins the war on the Allies' side and the Allies begin to make their plans to to, invent, to land on French soil and to fight the Germans, those landings were taking place on the Mediterranean coast and at Dunkirk, sorry, not Dunkirk, on the Normandy coast for the Normandy landings, the D-Day landings. And so the the information and the intelligence that was being provided by Catherine and the rest of F2 was vital for those landings. At the same time, the Gestapo was stepping up their um, surveillance and infiltration of these resistance networks. And towards... The beginning of 1944, Catherine got a coded message telling her to go to her to her brother in in Paris, because more and more people were being in her network were being arrested along the southern coast, and so she was told to go to Paris and to continue the activities there in Paris, which she did. So she moved into Christian's apartment um, where they'd lived together before the Second World War and he where he was living again. And she he sheltered her. He he also sheltered other members of her resistance network when they had meetings there. But finally 
she was and this particular network was was betrayed by a French collaborator having been infiltrated by a French collaborator and in early July Catherine along with other members of the network were arrested and tortured at 180 Rue de la Pompe by these particularly brutal um, collaborators and French Gestapo members. And some of them were so badly tortured that they were killed. And indeed, to begin with, I mean, the the archives of of F2, one of the leaders originally thought that, that Catherine also had been tortured and killed. But in fact, she she didn't give away any names. She survived the most terrible bouts of, of torture. Um, by remaining silent, she saved the life of Hervé, um, of his family, of her best friend, Liliane, who was in the same resistance network, and of her brother, Christian. So she was tortured on two separate occasions um, and imprisoned uh, in a French prison, Fren, and then moved to an internment camp on French soil on, near Paris, and then was deported on the, the, the night of the 15th of August, 1944, so really just shortly before the liberation of Paris. And the train that she was on, which was made up of, of sealed cattle trucks that left Paris. It was the last train of deportees out of Paris before Paris was liberated by the Allies on the 25th of August. So she was on a train with um, about 400 women and there were members of the resistance like her, French women. There were also British SOE agents who'd been working with the French resistance. There was a an American woman um, on board who'd been working with the French resistance. She had a an American husband, and there were also about 1,800 to 2,000 men, including um, Allied airmen who'd been shot down and who were deported. And the men were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and the women to Ravensbrück. Christian managed to find out that that Catherine, um, that she'd been imprisoned and that she was then on this train. And the train took a week to reach Germany. And until it crossed from the French borders into Germany, Christian had been doing his very best to get Catherine released off the train, as were many other people, because the Allies were now so close, you know, they were on French soil. It seemed particularly brutal that the Nazis were still forcing the, this train um, of prisoners to go to Germany. But Christian didn't succeed in, in getting Catherine off. And she arrives in, in Ravensbrück on the 22nd of August 1944. And Ravensbrück was Hitler's only concentration camp for women. And she arrives there and it is the beginning She's already had this terrible experience of torture and imprisonment in France and then this terrible journey with no water, no food, no sanitation on the train. And then she arrives uh, in the, the hell that is Ravensbrook. So how did Catherine survive and what was her brother doing while she was in Germany? So... When she was in Germany, so she arrived in Ravensbrück and this, I mean, all concentration camps were truly terrible and Ravensbrück was no exception to that rule. She was subjected to a programme called Extermination Through Labour. So there were gas chambers at Ravensbrück, but there was also this, this truly appalling program where the prisoners were worked to death as slave laborers some of them stayed at ravensbrook there was a a siemens factory at ravensbrook that was um you know manu- manufacturing 
weaponry. There was a textile workshop where women were forced to make SS uniforms. Um, and there were various other sort of slave labour that they were forced to do. So Catherine worked at, at Ravensbrook for a time and then she was moved to a series of three subcamps. Um, and while I was researching the book, and I went to Germany twice while I was researching the book, I just had no idea that there were so many camps. There were over 1,100. And, you know, many of them have been completely forgotten. And the three that Catherine was was moved to, which were called Torgau, Abtiroda, and then Marklinburg, were you know, none of these are, are well-known names like like Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or, or Buchenwald. But terrible things happened there. And Catherine was, was forced to work as a slave labourer on, you know, munitions, on, on aircraft engines. And many of her companions and her comrades were, were worked to death or, or died of a combination of disease, you know, starvation, exhaustion. And somehow Catherine survived. And I interviewed um, a woman in, in America who'd, who'd met Catherine in, in one of these camps along with the other French women. And this woman was just 14 at the time and she had a, a she and her 13-year-old sister were the only people who had survived in a in a large Jewish family who'd been deported to Auschwitz. And she and her younger sister had ended up at the same slave labour camp as, as Catherine and a number of the French members of the resistance. And I went to talk to her about her experience, and she is one of the last survivors. And she said that Catherine and, and this other small group of French women had seemed very, very courageous to her. They had shown her and her younger sister how to do a, a V sign for victory. She also told me that, that Catherine had continued to resist by sabot secretly sabotaging the machinery that they were working on so that it would break down or that the, the components that they were manufacturing for, for the Nazi arms manufacturers would have a flaw in them so so Catherine found a way I suppose to survive by resisting and she said to me that Catherine was the captain of her own soul which I thought was very sort of powerful description that that somehow that although physically she was imprisoned and was suffering terribly that she somehow found ways of not letting her spirit be crushed by the Nazi regime. And given that everything that the Nazis did in, in the camps was to dehumanize people, to treat them as subhuman, that, that the, the survivors like Catherine, they survived for a number of reasons. One of them just might be luck. The other was the support of of the, their friends around them. And then the other way was to somehow find a way to keep your spirit alive. And that's what Catherine did. And she managed to escape from what were known as the death marches. So as the Allies were advancing across Germany, she was in a, a camp that received a, um, a command that the prisoners should be evacuated away from the advancing Allied troops. So there was this sort of crazy vision that the Nazis still had, the leadership that somehow, you know, they were still going to win the war and that these slave labourers would come in useful. So they were forced onto a death march where many, many more of them died, were collapsed and were shot. Catherine managed to escape after an, 
you know, the most terrible experiences where Germany was in, in ruins. She escaped in Dresden when Dresden had been firebombed and was in complete ruins. But she finally made her way back to Paris at the end of May 1945. And Christian was there at the train station to meet her. And she, like so many of the the, the returning deportees was unrecognizable she was emaciated her head had been shaved and she recovered physically um, by first of all going to Provence where she spent the summer of 1945 and there's a letter in the archives where she said that just being um, in this place that that she loved with the sunlight and this landscape that she loved was was a way of helping her convalescence. And one of her friends um, said that one of the few things she'd said about her experience in, in the camps was that she was determined to see the sunrise and the sunset again in, in France, this land that she loved, and in Provence. So she slowly recovers that summer. And she has the love of... of the two men that that she has these very important relationships with, which is um, Christian and and Hervé. Her father was also still alive at this point, though he died in 1946. And she also found a way to go on living despite deep psychological scarring and physical trauma and suffering um, through flowers. So she started growing roses and jasmine um, on her father's farm. After his death in 1946, he left the farm to her. Um, but she also, in the autumn of 1945, when she was living with Christian again in, in Paris, um, she received a license to deal in cut flowers in the in the flower market in in Paris. So she literally, in one sense, becomes a flower woman. And the phrase is important because when Christian makes the decision to set up a couture house and a a launch a perfume of his own in 1946, he seems to have decided this in the spring of 1946. It's when Catherine is living with him and he says that, he wants to to launch a, a fragrance, which is the fragrance of love. He calls it, but it's 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 a floral fragrance, and its its prime ingredient is rose. But then there are other flowers that are part of it. And Catherine is growing roses, and she is surrounded by roses in Paris. And he also his first couture collection. He calls it La Corolle or the Corolla, which is, you know, the name of, of the central part of the flower and the petals, the whirl of petals that surrounds it. And, and there is Catherine, who has found a way to go on living after the trauma of her experience through love and through flowers. And Christian takes this and turns it into his famous vision of of couture and perfume. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. It truly is an incredible story, and you do an incredible job detailing her life from her early childhood up far past World War II. So let's talk a little bit about her life afterward. You mentioned how she how she grows flowers, how she lives a mostly quiet life. However, there is a moment where she does have to reconnect with her prior trauma when she testifies against some members 
of the Gestapo and their involvement in cracking down on the resistance during World War II. Can you talk about this trial and her involvement with it? Yes, it's an extraordinary trial based on a long investigation that actually started fairly soon after the liberation of Paris. So this unit that was known as the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, there's one Polish woman who'd been living in Paris and was uh, uh, was horribly tortured at the Rue de la Pompe. And rather than being deported, she was somehow kind of overlooked. And she was actually in hospital when the Allies arrived in Paris. And she made a statement saying that she had been arrested and tortured and that there were German members of the Gestapo, but there were French members of the Gestapo too. So a French investigating magistrate um, takes on this investigation and it takes until November 1952 for the trial of the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo to take place. And in that period, they take literally thousands of witness statements, including from Catherine Dior. And I mentioned that in my research, I went through all these handwritten witness statements in order to discover what it was that the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo had done and how they'd operated and their links with black marketeers and and racketeers in Paris. And the trial finally takes place and, and Catherine is one of the witnesses. And the fact that she appears in court is is very, very brave, given how traumatic it was for her talking about her experiences. But what is equally telling is that at this point, her brother is not just one of the most famous Frenchmen in the world. He's not just, you know, the most famous designer in the world. He's one of the most famous men in the world. And Catherine appears at this trial and nobody says anything about her in the reporting. Nobody makes the link with the fact that she is Christiane Dior's younger sister. Even more remarkably, because I went through the archives of the newspapers that covered the trial, and the reporter, the journalist from Le Monde, who who covers the trial, he had been a member of the French resistance, and he had been deported to to a German concentration camp which was one of the reasons he wanted to to cover the trial. But he says in his reporting on the trial that nobody in France wants to know about the trial, that the public gallery is empty. And he makes the point that France cannot bear to think about what has happened during the Second World War when it comes to the widespread collective collaboration. Of course, not everybody actively collaborated in the same way that the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo had active French collaborators. Not everybody were members of the Vichy regime. You know, some people just like, in fact, like Christian Dior, were tacit supporters of the resistance. Christian Dior, by sheltering his sister at his apartment where members of the resistance were meeting that would have been enough for him to have been deported if he'd been arrested. But so many people, I suppose, just kept their heads down and did what they had to do to survive. But many people made a lot of money out of collaboration. Um, Many people made money out of the black market. And then, of course, you know, there were huge numbers of people that were involved in Vichy France. And Vichy France, which had very rapidly dismantled French democracy in 1940 with the establishment of the Vichy regime, had enacted their own viciously anti-Semitic legislation without even being told to by the Germans. So there was there was a lot of... I mean, France was really, I suppose, divided. But you see General de Gaulle with the liberation and his famous speech... Um, in August 1944, where he says, France, you know, France has been martyred, but then France has been liberated by the whole of France, the true France, the eternal France. So de Gaulle 
makes this decision that in order to, for France to be reconciled and reunited and to move forward, there has to be this myth that everybody resisted, everybody comes together for the true France. Whereas, in fact, the reality is many people didn't resist. And that very his- difficult, tricky history makes it a very traumatic period of France for the French to think about. And I think that one of the things that was so hard for Catherine and and other women like her was that when those survivors of Ravensbrück returned, and I explore this in the book, some of them had written diaries or memoirs and wanted to talk about it, wanted to publish books. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And as I write about in the book, they, they go through yet another sense of betrayal and trauma when people cannot bear to hear about their experiences. And I think that that perhaps what makes it so difficult and why there is so much silence about the women is some of them, you know, had been sexually assaulted, both either when they were tortured um, or during their periods of imprisonment. And some of the women who talked about surviving the camps and returning to France, and then they were mistaken for les femmes tendues, so those women who had their heads shaved after the in the immediate aftermath of the liberation, where women who were perceived and indeed scapegoated for having been seen as having collaborated some of them had had their heads shaved. So the women returning from the camps also had shaved heads. And there is just so much trauma and, and suffering and, and bitterness that France just prefers to forget. Yeah, it is one of the most powerful and shocking parts of the book and I can't imagine what she must have been going through at the time, having to relive those horrible experiences. And to also know that so many of the women who had been arrested by the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo and tortured died in Ravensbrück. So some of her own comrades in F2 or comrades in the French resistance who had not only suffered at the hands of the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, thanks to the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, they had been deported to Germany where they had died. So it was, it was terrible. And yet her witness statements are very um, detailed. She, she gives all the details of what had happened to her and she gives the names of other women in her resistance network who'd been arrested at the same time as her. I mean, one of Christiane Dior's friends who was in F2 with Catherine had been killed at Rue de la Pompe. His torture was so violent that he was killed. So Catherine gives all this information. But when she's on the witness stand... The only thing that is reported, actually, um, in Le Monde, and they don't make the the association with Christian Dior, but one of the defence lawyers says that, you know, she must have been mistaken. It can't have been these two particular Frenchmen who tortured her because a number of the, the people involved had rather conveniently vanished at the end of the war and were never found and were tried in absentia. And so the the defense lawyer tries to say, oh well, it weren't it wasn't these two particular Frenchmen who were actually, you know, on in in on trial in person. It must have been two of the others who disappeared. And she says, I know who I saw, I know who I'm talking about. So she goes through it, but to a France that appears not really to care very much at this point. They just do not want to be reminded of what has happened. The other thing I think that was very hard for for Catherine was that in the 
post-war economic miracle that takes place in West Germany, there is there are many of the German industrialists um, who'd been involved in slave labor, um, you know, whether it's at Siemens or BMW, these sort of household names either go to prison for a very short amount of time or are never even put on trial. So nobody from the Siemens factory at Ravensbrück was ever, ever went on trial in Germany. And what we see in West Germany is that after the, the immediate famous Nuremberg trial, there is a sort of feeling that the Soviet Union becomes more of a threat and the, the Nazi industrialists, some of whom have never been put in prison and others are let out of prison because there's a feeling that, that West Germany needs to be reconstructed, it needs to be rebuilt. And the way to do that is with these industrialists. So for Catherine, who never returned to Germany after the war, um, some of her comrades did and indeed planted roses at Ravensbrück. There's an extraordinary rose garden that was planted at Ravensbrück in, by French women and Czech women and Polish women in memory of their sisters and friends and daughters and mothers who died there. Catherine didn't return to Ravensbrück, but even if she just saw a German car with a German number plates on the road in France, she would be angry and upset. And who can blame her when you thought, think she worked as a slave labourer in a camp for a BMW factory? And if she she couldn't bear to be reminded that those brands like Siemens and BMW were still operating and, and very, very successfully. So she would never own a, a German household appliance, for example, whether it was a you know a fridge or a or a cooker, and she certainly, she hated seeing German cars. So in that sense, she couldn't forgive or forget, but she did make a very meaningful life for herself, and she lived life on her own terms. She remained with Hervé de Charbonnery until his death in 1989, and and they ran both the, the flower business together in Paris and then the rose-growing business together in at their home in France. And when her brother died in 1957, he made Catherine, um, he described her as his moral heir. So she was in charge of his legacy. So all his drawings, his illustrations, the couture gowns, it's thanks to Catherine that there is the Christian Dior Museum in their childhood home in, in Granville. She became the first president of of that museum in the 1990s. And much of the Dior archives is based on material that Catherine preserved. So she was incredibly loyal to Christian and to his artistic legacy. She also, every year, um, she would go to the, the, the commemoration of people that had died fighting for, for French freedom, both during the Second World War and, um, and, she, she, you know, would remember those who had died for France. And she, on one occasion, um, talked to school children in her local village. And I actually met one of the people that had been a child at that point, but is, is now a grown man. And he said that when she came to speak to the school about the Second World War, she didn't say anything horrific about her experiences she just said you know France had been occupied and the the Nazis had occupied France and the many people had suffered and but some people had, had resisted so she put it in quite simple terms there was no horror in her description but she you know felt it was important for these school children to know what had happened during the war so that it could never happen again. She lived until she was 90 and she carried on growing her roses, which were still used for, for Dior perfume, including for Miss Dior. And she lived until the age of 90 and she died in June 2008, having brought in 
her, what would prove to be her final harvest of roses. And that to me is ext- extraordinarily inspiring that this, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I love gardening and I'm a keen gardener. And in my garden, I've, I've planted roses in memory of, of Catherine and, and the women like her. And, and I think to, to grow roses or indeed to create a garden is a sign of hope in the future. You don't plant a tree or plant a meadow full of roses unless you're thinking of future generations, unless you're looking ahead to the years ahead. It is a, an act of faith. It is an act of, of hope to plant roses. And the other extraordinary thing about roses, uh, the final chapter of my book is called No Rose Without a Thorn. And, and that is based on a, you know, on a, a saying that there is no rose without a thorn. And roses are beautiful. Roses are fragrant, but they are also covered in thorns. And, and that seems to me to be so wonderfully emblematic of, of Catherine. She showed great resilience there are roses that can survive terrible winters. Indeed, the roses that were planted at Ravensbrook are called resurrection roses because they have a, an ability to survive very cold winters. But sometimes roses die in a very cold winter, and yet Catherine would go on planting her roses, go on tending her roses, and that's such an extraordinary act of, of resilience and hope. So let's get back to the title of your book, Miss Dior. Despite living largely in the shadows, she did have an impact on her brother and through him, the fashion world. And I think it's apropos that you mentioned the roses and her cultivation, because this definitely plays into it. What impact did Miss Dior have on French and world fashion? Well, Miss Dior, the perfume, becomes and remains one of the most successful perfumes in the world. So it still not only survives today, but it still thrives today. And for many people, you know, that bottle, little bottle of Miss Dior will be very emblematic of something that is seen as being quintessentially French, just as Christian Dior comes to represent the continuation of French tradition, the tradition of French luxury, of artistry, of couture after the war. It continues to represent that today. So Miss Dior, the perfume, still continues today. Christian Dior also designs a very beautiful couture dress called the Miss Dior Couture Gown, which is a gown covered in thousands of beautifully, intricately, hand-embroidered flowers, including roses and lily of the valley. And that gown still survives in the Dior archives, but it has also been remade by the the current or reinterpreted by the current creative director of Christian Dior, who's Maria Grazia Curie, the first female creative director of, of Dior. And Maria Grazia Curie has put feminism at the heart of her creative vision for the brand. And by making a misty or dress, um, you have that sense of, of how misty or remains at the heart of the brand. Maria Grazia has also been inspired in part by my research and my book into the figure of, of Catherine Dior because of her, her, independence because of her fight for 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 freedom and so there have been subtle references to to Catherine in Maria Grazia's creative vision for the brand so her spring 2020 collection was inspired by the figure of of Catherine as a as a gardener as a constant gardener and and so you see that in, in Maria Grazia's designs. Um, she also did a bag which she called the Caro bag. And it's a very subtle reference to, as, as her own tribute to Catherine, because Caro was, the, was 
Catherine's code name in the French resistance. So you see how today in 2021, Catherine continues to inspire Christian Dior today. Your book uncovers a unique figure with an incredible story, having served in the resistance, survived a concentration camp and death march, won the Croix de Guerre, and engaged in France's world-renowned fashion industry. But your book isn't just about her, it's also about you and your journey to rediscover this largely unknown figure, what was your main takeaway from researching Catherine Dior and what do you hope your readers will be left with once they finish the last page? Well, I suppose I hope that the readers will have come with me on this journey. And it is in places a very personal journey because I, I literally went to the places that I was writing about. So their home in in Granville, the family home, which is uh, Les Rumes, was the name of the villa, and the garden is still there today. Their family home is now the Christian Dior Museum. I went to um, to Ravensbrook. I went to the, the satellite camps. I went, I discovered the the Rose Garden in Ravensbrook, which is one of the most moving places I've ever been to in my life, not just my life as a writer, you know, I'm now 60, so in my entire life. And to Avenue Montaigne, to Christian Dior's Couture Salon, to his home in Provence, La Col Noire, to Les Nice, which was where Catherine and Christian had lived together in the 30s and in the early years of the war, and then when she lived after the war with Hervé and where I, I went and stayed during the rose harvest while I was writing and researching my book. So the reader comes with me, and in that sense, you know, some of the book is written in the first person because I myself were going to those places, and I hope that the reader will come with me. So I hope that by joining me on this journey, the reader will feel a kind of personal experience of this historical period and will have realized that there are so many stories that, and women's stories that I have written about in the book, that it is about her story her stories as well as history and that history is very often the story you know of of generals of of military leaders of of prime ministers of presidents of male politicians and that I hope that this book will give a sense of people who are often not part of mainstream history and I include Christian Dior in that because I think that all too often fashion is can be marginalized from the history of, of, of war because it's seen as being, you know, frivolous and, and just not relevant. But I think that my experience of writing about Coco Chanel and Christian Dior has taught me that fashion is what we wear is an important expression of history. I mean, Virginia Woolf, in her wonderful novel, Orlando, um, says clothes change our view of the world and the world's view of us. And I would agree with that. You know, the Nazis were obsessed with the clothes they wore. You look at how Jewish people were forced to wear a yellow star so that and that they were forced to sew it onto their clothes. And it came out of their, their clothing rations they were forced to be marked out as being different and then the concentration camp uniforms those 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 striped uniforms that that we do we should look at the be allowed to look at the fabric of history and the fabric of history includes real material the warp and weft of history can include what people wear and and I hope that I mean the the story of the history of couture during the occupation of 
of Paris is fascinating. The couture industry thrived during the occupation of Paris. And there is a myth that that was just because it was down to German officers and the wives and mistresses of, of, you know, Nazi officials and Germans. In fact, yes, there were some, some Germans were buying couture, but there were also a lot of French collaborators um, who'd made a lot of money, whose wives and girlfriends were, were dressed in couture. And that hadn't really been written about before. So I wanted to explore these areas. And, and I hope that, that people, I suppose what I ultimately hope is that I was interested, fascinated in doing the research in things that I'd know nothing about. And I hope that readers will share that fascination in untold stories. The book is Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture by Justine Picardy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.